You can open your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we'll be continuing our study in the Gospel of John. I'll ask you at this time, if you're able to stand with me, to read verses 9 through 11 of John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verses 9 through 11, we'll read together and then pray and begin the message. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I praise you and I thank you for this time and for your word. God, we are in need of you to hear from you, the living God. Oh God, you are not dead. You are not in some distant land, uninvolved and uninterested in your people. And I pray that you would prove that once again. Lord, minister to our hearts. Remind us of who you are, of your goodness and your love, of your forgiveness and mercy. Father, I pray that you would lead us according to your word. Father, that we would grow in our knowledge of you in this text today. Father, I do ask that you would shut my mouth, guard me from misspeaking. O Father, that you would be glorified according to the truth. And O God, I am dependent upon you. I pray that you would help me to speak with boldness, with authority, and with power. Lord, we know, even as we've read, that there is no authority except that which is given from above. God, I pray that Jesus Christ would be exalted. Lord, let us see him as he really is and praise him as he deserves to be. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I do have somewhat of an introduction I'd like to share with you in light of the context of John chapter 19. And the reason I make this introduction the way that I do is because of what we've been seeing as a pattern really throughout John, and I'm going to contend this pattern is in all of the scriptures from beginning to end. One of the most common expressions that people make with regards to the preaching of the gospel in particularly is that it is at times tirelessly repetitive. Have you ever heard that? The expression from someone, here we go, talking about the same thing again, again, and again. And you all know it is certainly true to say that John and his gospel has been extremely repetitive. But I want to remind us here at the introductory portion today that this is not only the message from John, the apostle. This is God's word through John. In other words, John doesn't say anything to us in our text that the Holy Spirit did not inspire for him to write. And so when we come across pieces and portions that are highly repetitive, it's because that is God's intention for us. But I'd go even further than just John, and I would say the entirety of both the New and Old Testament are essentially one primary declaration that's being made. 
from hundreds of different perspectives. Here's the picture. The gospel, as we find it presented to us in the New Testament, is presented all throughout the Old Testament in this historical narrative on a linear timeline. This is what I'm saying to you, that we read in the beginning in Genesis of the fall of man, followed by the promise of God to redeem man from the fall. And from that point, from the time God makes the promise in Genesis 3, all the way forward to the New Testament, all along the way, God is using illustration after illustration after illustration in the lives of His people, pointing forward to Christ. And at times, those illustrations actually speak directly to the coming of Christ. But I'm arguing that that is the central theme and point of your entire Bible is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what it's all ultimately about. And so I say that God's communication to us in this written form The entirety of God's communication is focused on Jesus. A couple of examples just from the New Testament to support what I'm saying. Hebrews 11, 12 through 13 says this, speaking of Abraham, Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Here's my point. That God throughout history, even up until that point with Abraham, you can go and read of His individual dealings with people before Abraham. But Abraham is the one whereby God establishes this covenant to a particular people. And it's through this man, Abraham. And the record of Scripture indicates to us that every one of Abraham's descendants who had faith in Christ were looking forward to the promise which had not yet been fulfilled. Again, one other example. I, I, I want to lay this foundation for us as a, as a call upon us to, to sit with some sobriety and sober-mindedness under our text today. But from 1 Peter chapter 1, we find this same illustration, this same reality to us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. He writes and says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. And so again, what we see there from Peter is that those in the past, in the Old Testament, who believed according to the Spirit of God were looking forward to Christ who would come. So the point I'm making to you is that Jesus and His gospel did not become the center of attention whenever He became incarnate in the New Testament. Jesus Christ and His gospel has been the central theme and point in all of God's communication. And although it's right to say that Jesus is more clearly revealed and seen in the New Testament, the central theme... How do I make this point? Why am I stressing this at the beginning? Our tendency as either an unconverted religious person or even as immature and impatient Christians, is that we grow weary with all the repetition. And perhaps you've already heard me say things here this morning and think, well, you've said things like that often to us, so we've heard that before, almost as if that kind of nullifies its significance that you already perhaps know it. Well, 
I'm arguing this way, that we often long to get beyond Christ. Now, perhaps we would never say that, would never word that, but we want to go beyond Jesus Christ as if there was something more waiting for us after we've reached the proper understanding of the gospel. And here's my question to you. Do you think that's a biblical idea? Should we be eagerly longing to grow past the gospel in our studies? Think of it this way. You know, the world is prepared to scoff at the simplicity of our message. I'm afraid that at times we vindicate and justify their lack of interest by our own longing for Christ growing cold. Why should we expect them to care anything about what we have to say about Him if He doesn't remain the focus of our attention? The primary message of God's power that's given to us is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The point I'm driving at is that as we consider these things again and again, and as all these similar themes are repeated surrounding Jesus, that we be prepared to enter into an expression of worship as we hear these things, and not just merely saying, I've heard that all already. But I ask again, because some people, and I know there are people, preachers even, that will, I know for a fact that I personally and someone else, even in this town and community, have been criticized. Someone says, all they ever do is talk about the gospel as if that was all there was. To which I say, amen. What a wonderful reputation. What more could you ask for by God's grace alone? But there are those who believe that a focus on the gospel is not what we ought to be doing. We need to move past that into the practical things, right? Don't we? Was there any biblical warrant for that? Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1 says this, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And so you hear that? Let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. And so there are those who would say, the way we're to interpret that is to say that the elementary doctrine is the doctrine of Christ. As long as you're focused on Christ and His gospel, that's the elementary things. Once we're saved, what use is there in continuing to study and focus upon the milk of Jesus? People say, we want meat, we want more. Give me something else. Well... For us to rightly understand verse 1, I think it prudent to consider verses 4 through 6 of the same chapter. Hebrews chapter 6, he tells us to, we need to leave this elementary doctrine of Christ. Then verses 4 through 6, he says this, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Here's my position. Here's my argument in light of the central focus of Christ and how that's always to be our goal. Think of it this way. The author of the Hebrews is saying this. Those who are crucifying again the Son of God, he says they're holding Jesus in contempt. They're saying this essential doctrine is not enough. We need to go beyond the essential doctrine of Christ. So here's the way I'm inclined to interpret that let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ this way. It all has to do with what emphasis you place on the sentence structure. Consider it this way. You could say, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ as if Christ Himself is the elementary thing. Or you could understand it this way. Let us leave the elementary 
doctrine of Christ. Do you catch the difference in that? Do you see the difference in the way that that statement comes together? In other words, here's the point. The elementary doctrine of Christ is your entrance into the kingdom of God. This is your salvation. This is how a person is born again by repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That if you're a Christian, you're not living in dead works. You've been born again from dead works. You've been born again to living works. You're no longer dead. The elementary or the introductory doctrine of Christ. But as a person who's been born again, here's the charge. Is that you who have been born again are to leave the elementary, the beginning doctrine of Christ, and from there to press on to a further knowledge and understanding of Christ. That you graduate from elementary doctrine and then you move forward into deeper doctrine, but Christ remains the focus of it all. Do you see how how inconsistent it would be to say, let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, but then to come down and say people who are holding Christ in contempt. They're not seeing His doctrine, His gospel as central, as focused, as priority, re-crucifying Him. Here's my point. As we move into our text today, here's I've got a question for us all. Do you want to grow up into maturity as a Christian? Do you want to grow in your knowledge of God? Do you want to grow in your knowledge of Christ? Would you have a deeper sense of awareness of God in your life? How many Christians, myself included, at times go through seasons where we say, I am continuing down the road that God has put me on, but my sensitivities are dull. My knowledge of God or sense that God is with me is is dull. Would you know the warmth of God's smile upon you? And I would say to you, look upon Christ and Him crucified. There's, it's not without cause that Paul can say to the church at Corinth, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I'm going to submit to you that the author to the Hebrews was not contradicting Paul whenever he says, leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. He wasn't saying you leave Jesus in the dust and now we're going to focus on something else. No. Here's the point. If you would grow in your knowledge of God and even your sense of relationship as a Christian to God, if you would grow in that, then here's the call. That you would see how this eternal and unchanging truth impacts not only your salvation and entrance into the kingdom, but every aspect of your enjoyment of this kingdom. And then the second question is to those who are on the outside looking in as an unbeliever. The person here who's never really known what it means to have the love of God shed abroad in your heart. You see, these things are vitally connected. Here's my point. It's Christ and His gospel. That's how the the love of God is shed abroad in my heart. I see the love of Christ. I believe by faith, repentance and faith. I'm here. I see it. I know the love of God now. I didn't used to. And the charge is, once you have been made able to see that, that you go on marveling at it and seeing how that love impacts everything you do. Everything in your life. It's not as though you leave it. Well, if you're one who's outside of that, then listen well. For this message we're looking at here today is the only one in which God has promised to accompany by His Spirit in salvation of souls. This is the only one. I know I recognize that's a lengthier introduction, but I want us to be as focused in our attention as we possibly can be when we enter into these very familiar Verses and ideas. So beginning with verse 9, we read this. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, 
Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. The last thing we saw last week about Pilate was that these Jews had said to him, Jesus is guilty of making himself the Son of God. Go look in the context. You'll find that immediately there in chapter 19. They said that to Pilate in verse 7. He ought to die because he's made himself the Son of God. And you recall this. Whenever they told Pilate that, it says, and he was even more afraid when he heard that statement. So this is the point. When Pilate says, where are you from to Jesus? That question is immediately related to what the Jews said about him being the Son of God and the fear that that produced in Pilate. That's the point. So he asked Jesus, where are you from? Now, if you'll recall, Jesus has already alluded to the answer in his previous engagement with Pilate. Back in chapter 18, we saw this from Jesus. He told Pilate in discussing his kingdom, he says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Evidently, Pilate wasn't paying paying very close attention whenever Jesus said that. Essentially what Jesus is saying when he says, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, he's saying to Pilate, yes, I'm a man. I have come into the world. I've been born, but I'm more than a man. I've come into this world from another realm. And so before we progress in our thoughts today, let me put that question to you. Pilate asked Jesus, where are you from? Do you know where Jesus is from? Does it strike you as significant at all? Whenever you read, I'm I'm all the time just so compelled when I read the Scriptures and I see people interacting with Jesus, when they ask Him questions like this, it's so compelling. And I wonder, it's easy to take for granted and to assume that you know where Jesus is from. But the reality is, those who remain outside of Christ, those who are not saved, Many of them have no idea where Jesus is really from. They assume that they know where He's from because of different things. But what would you say? Have you ever wrestled through this vital question? I would even go as far as to say that if you do not understand where Jesus is actually from, you're either going to be severely limited in your knowledge of Christ and the Gospel, if not lost altogether and completely headed to destruction. So again I ask, where is Jesus from? We'll limit our answer to that question to the Gospel of John. But I have a number of these. Listen well, and I can give them to you later if you like. But in John 1.1, we remember this. John says, the very beginning of his Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John tells us that this Jesus, this Word, was in the beginning with God, and He was God. Now, here's the point. Pilate says, where are you from? Jesus could have said to him, I'm from eternity. I existed before the beginning. I was with God and I was God before anything was made that was made. Or you could fast forward. That's the first answer. He was there. He was with God and He was God. Where are you from? Then you fast forward to John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29. We find this. Where is Jesus from? The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, something interesting to note about that text. Did you know John the Baptist's birthday was before Jesus? 
John the Baptist was conceived and born before Jesus of Nazareth. That's a historical fact. And yet John says, he was before me. This Jesus, this Lamb of God, he was before me. He's something unique, someone special. Where is he from? He's not from the same place as you and I. Not in that sense. There's something significant in this. John says, he was before me. And you look forward to John chapter 8. Where is Jesus from? Who is this one Pilate has before him here? Verses 48 through 59 of John chapter 8, we find this. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Is that not almost a parallel idea of what Pilate's asking Jesus here? Where are you from? The Jews say, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. Known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Pilate says, where are you from? Jesus very well might have said, I'm from a period in history before history. I'm from eternity. I'm before Abraham. That's where I'm from. I was with the Father in eternity. And then, of course, we found recently in John chapter 17 and verse 5, Jesus, where is he from? He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Where is he from? If you don't get this right, the entire plan of salvation makes no sense and it falls completely apart. If Jesus is only a man. I was telling someone recently, even at the park gathering yesterday, when I talked to Jehovah Witnesses who deny the deity of Jesus, I don't argue with them about all the things that they want to argue about. I simply tell them this, if Jesus is not God, you're still in your sin. Now you can hold on to whatever fantastic doctrine you think you have with your altered translations of the Bible, but if Jesus is not God incarnate, what does it matter? Because you're going to face His judgment because no man in and of himself can pay for your sin who is not also God. Jesus says, that's where I'm from. He tells us this. It's important that we make this point because our world today is full of cults who deny that Jesus truly is God because they don't understand the same thing Pilate didn't understand. They didn't understand where he was really from. Mormons believe that Jesus became a God, and you and I can too. We can have our own solar system to govern someday if we just are good enough and our good outweighs our bad, essentially. They don't see Jesus and that He came from eternity. Jehovah Witnesses, I mentioned, they believe Jesus was the archangel Michael and that He was a created being. 
They don't see Jesus as he really is. Muslims believe that Jesus was merely a prophet, a very good man, a good prophet, much like Muhammad. And many professing Christians have no real conception of the fact that the one they call Savior is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the entire universe. This word who was in the beginning with God is the one by whom all things were made and nothing was made apart from what he made. This is where Jesus is from. Pilate is completely clueless. Are you? Do you see this is the Jesus revealed to us? If you're not submitted to the fact that Jesus Christ is God Almighty, He is co-equal with the Father, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, He's the beginning and the end, and He is without beginning or end, if you don't see that, then Jesus must in fact have been a blasphemer and deserve to die. If you don't come to this realization, there's absolutely nothing wrong historically with His crucifixion and death. He was a liar if these things are not true of Him. And yet, this Jesus, who is from all eternity, clothed Himself in this majesty and meekness, refusing to answer Pilate here. Now, I almost get the sense in reading this, especially when you see Pilate's response. Jesus, after their engagement, we're going on to see, Pilate tries again and again and again to release Jesus. Why does he do that? It's almost as though... Pilate's compelled by something here. Something is standing out. He sees Jesus as innocent. Why should he care about Jesus? Why should he want to release him? It's almost as if in order to to fulfill the purpose for which he came, Jesus is not even responding in order to ensure that he himself would be delivered up to be crucified for the Father's purpose. But Jesus doesn't say a word. He keeps his mouth shut. Verse 10, we begin to see Pilate's response. Jesus doesn't answer him when he asks, where are you from? So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Now, as I'm mentioning, Pilate, he appears on the surface, at least you could see how that might come across as him being angry or indignant. I mean, you could ask Kevin, if he issued a question in a court of law and the person he asked refused to answer him, that might be a little bit of a problem in the legal system. So here you have someone on trial refusing to answer the questions you put to them. It doesn't look very good for him, does it? And it looks almost as though Pilate's angry towards him. He's indignant because Jesus won't answer him. But in reality, I think it's more likely that Pilate's words here are an expression of his own fear, masking itself and arrogance. And isn't this true? When people are uneasy, when they're afraid, when they have weak arguments or insecure positions, they'll often respond with emotion-driven aggression. I find this to be true, that the more uncertain and unstable a person is in their arguments and their positions, the more likely they are to get loud and to get aggressive and to get emotional because they don't have a strong argument. I've heard of preachers at times writing in their notes, weak argument, yell here. God forbid that I should ever do that. Let the passion and excitement come from this book. Let the truth contained here be that which propels us up in our exclamations and our rejoicing. But that's what he says. Pilate says, you'll not speak to me. But this expression given from Pilate here, I believe, is exactly the way in which people respond to Jesus today. Jesus doesn't answer him, so he says, don't you know I've got authority to release you or an authority to crucify you? Well, people today vainly imagine, 
Perhaps this is you. People vainly imagine that it really ultimately is up to us either to accept or reject Jesus. Now, while it is true, it is true, biblically, that each individual person must either submit themselves to or reject Jesus Christ, that is true. Yet our rejection or reception of Christ has absolutely zero impact on His Lordship. Jesus is Lord and King regardless of what you do with Him. And Pilate's expression here, this is the way people are. They hear the truth of God's Word, and if it challenges and offends them, then they're prepared to sit in judgment over it and to say, well, I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to listen to that. To make themselves the arbiter. And from Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, just to make this point clear, and this was the basis for one of the songs that we just sang, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh yes, even the unbelieving, even those who die in their sin are going to say Jesus is Lord someday. They will make that pronouncement. Our refusal or our ideas that say, well, whether or not I make Him Lord or not is going to make any difference. Well, certainly it may have an impact on your eternal soul, but it doesn't change the fact of Jesus Christ as Lord and His authority. So my question is, in light of Pilate's response, how is it that you respond? When the words of Jesus challenge your authority. How do you respond? Because Pilate's asked him a question and he doesn't answer. Have you ever prayed? Have you ever sought God about something and felt like you weren't getting a response that you wanted? How does that impact you? Are you prepared to give God an ultimatum if He doesn't answer you quickly? That's essentially what's displayed in this. Jesus doesn't answer, so Pilate says, Listen, bud, I can release you or I can kill you. Ultimatum, right here in front of you. The charge comes if at any time you are prepared to tell God that His purposes, that if they do not line up with your expectations, you're going to be done with Him. My humble charge is that you should repent of your arrogance and remember who it is that you're talking to. If at any time there's something in the Scriptures which causes me to think there's injustice with God or this is not right, God, back up and remember who you are. Remember what's true of you. Your fallen sinful affections in mind and God, the living God from all eternity who only ever does good. And realize that if there's a problem when you read the Scriptures, it is never with God. It's always with us. We are not in a position to give God ultimatums or to sit criticizing Him the way Pilate seems to be here. So then I ask, how is it that Jesus responds to Pilate's arrogant proclamation here? What did Pilate need to be reminded of? In light of his ultimatum, in light of his confidence and his fear, what is it that every one of us need to be reminded of frequently? In light of these things, Jesus answered him. Verse 11, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. First thing to notice about verse 11, Jesus does not make a suggestion here. Jesus neither does he allow for any uncertainty in this statement. 
He says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus is saying this, the only authority that any person has at any time is only ever the result of God's sovereign purpose. I've got a list of scriptures here to walk through with you and consider how this reality is expressed in the scriptures. And then we can look at some examples of how this has worked out practically and hopefully make some applications after that. But here's the first one. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21 we read, speaking of God, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. The first scripture we read from Daniel here, God removes kings and He sets up kings. And if someone's in a position of authority, regardless of the context, they're there because God intends for them to be there during that period. That's the truth. He sets them up, He removes them. Job chapter 34 verses 23 and 24 says, For God has no need to consider a man further, that he should go before God in judgment. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets up others in their place. Job is saying God has every right and every authority and all the power to be able to take someone, no matter how mighty they may be, and remove them from whatever position of authority they're in and put somebody else there if he wants to. God's prerogative. History is not left up to chance. Politics are not left up to chance. God Almighty is on His throne. And you can argue with this one way or another, but there's a reason why the ancients, the old monarchies, would usually recognize and they would claim God's sovereign ordained will whenever someone was set up as a king. They recognized something about God's oversight in history. Now, we can argue about the certainty of those bloodlines remaining in power and abusing people. We can talk about that. But the point is, the Scriptures reveal that God is over those who are in positions of authority. And not only He's not only over those who are in authority, He's over the decisions that they make while they're in authority. Consider from Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. If God wants the king to do something, he's able, he's mighty, he can turn them to do whatever he's put them in place to do. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, this letter begins, this this description of the one who this is coming from, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Notice it doesn't say the one who's trying to rule the kings of the earth or the one who will rule the kings of the earth. It says of Jesus, the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus is in authority and He promised as much in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. He's exercising that authority even in the context of unjust, wicked rulers like Pilate. Jesus says you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You see, no king, no ruler, no authority has ever been in place at any time apart from God's purpose in the world. Now, let's look and see how this has worked out practically in the Scriptures. This this doctrine is so thoroughly expressed in the Bible, there is zero possibility of denying it even for a moment. Consider first with me Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart was hardened from releasing Israel from Egypt. And then God, for a season, softens Pharaoh's heart by the plagues so that Pharaoh does 
let them go. He lets them depart and leave. And then God again, after they've left, hardens Pharaoh's heart to accomplish his good purpose. We find in Exodus 14.4, God says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now what you need to realize about this context is before this, God positions the children of Israel between Pyre, Hirath, and Belzeph and these two mountains in order to get glory for Himself. He says, I'm going to trap you with the Red Sea in front, mountains on either side, Pharaoh's coming after you. God designed and intended this entire thing for His own glory and delivering them through the Red Sea. God is sovereign over rulers and authorities. And then we get this reiterated, this idea in Romans 9, 17, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And to those who might be inclined to say, in justice with God, why is it right that God could use the wicked man Pharaoh and then judge him for what he used him for? The answer is Pharaoh's own wicked heart did what he wanted to do. But no man, no matter how mighty, no matter how great, will ever thwart the purpose of God. We serve a mighty God and nothing is left up to chance. Not a single promise of God will ever be not fulfilled because He's able to deliver what He promises. 2 Chronicles 36.22, consider another example of this. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So here we have God years prior has made a prophecy by name of this man, Cyrus, king of Persia, that he was going to use this man to release the people to go and rebuild the temple. That's what God's promise was before he was ever born. This promise was given. And God mentions him specifically by name. And you can go and read from Isaiah 44, verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now get this picture. A pagan king, God mentions my name and says, this guy is going to be my servant to go and fulfill my purpose, which I have determined to happen in the foundation being laid of the temple. This is the power of God and His power in the ones that He gives authority to accomplish His purposes in the world. The last one we can consider is from our call to worship in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, and I'm going to read a few more scriptures just to get the picture for you here of what God's power looks like over those that He puts in authority. Consider back beginning in verse 28 here. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom He will. Immediately, 
The word of the Lord, the word, the word, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew out as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all His works are right, and His ways are just, and those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. Now does it sound to you like this man, Nebuchadnezzar, was doing what he wanted to apart from God's purposes in his life? Is the the will of Nebuchadnezzar going to override and overrule the power of God according to what he's determined and what he's said? Absolutely not. God is the one who removes the kingdom, gives it back to him, and makes sure he knows there's a king above you, Nebuchadnezzar. There's one greater than you. The undeniable biblical doctrine is that God is absolutely sovereign over every ruler, every leader, any president, any king. They would not be in the position they're in if it were not for God's sovereign purpose. So the question comes, God's purposes in the world are not always according to what we would prefer. Surely we can list wicked rulers in high places. Surely we can list some today at this very moment that are not good or just rulers. And yet, how have they gotten there? Without it all diminishing our responsibility, whether in the system we have in our nation in voting, or exercising influence, or speaking truth to power, whatever it may be, without disregarding or denying any of that, we at the end of the day must recognize whether the voting system's even been corrupted. God is in authority over who is in positions of authority. And that doesn't mean that they won't err. It doesn't mean that they always do what's right. But what it does mean is God has an intention and a purpose for them. And maybe this talk about kings or governors or presidents is too far removed from your experience in everyday life. Do you reckon this has an application to you? What are some authority figures in your life that you at times butt heads with and come up against and have trouble acknowledging God is the one who's put this person as an authority in my life? Wives, you ever get upset, so upset with your husband that you think, This isn't right. And forget that whatever your circumstance, it's the Lord who has established this structure. It's the Lord who's given them to you for your good as an authority over you, even when they fail you. God has established this. Every authority has been given from above, even if it's abused. God has placed them there. Or children, your parents. Do you recognize God is the one who's given your parents authority over you? There's no such thing as authority apart from what God has done. Or perhaps it's your employer, the one you work for. God has made them an authority over you. Or even your elders and pastors here in this church. We continue on down the line to civil authorities. The question is, regardless, the principle established is, are you submitted to the fact 
that God has them where they are in your life. It's a lot easier for me even personally to say, yes, I am, than it is to live out in the moment whenever they're doing what I don't want them to do. I want to rail against them. Well, do we have an opportunity? Is it appropriate? Is it okay? Is it acceptable to call out and recognize the sin and the failure and the error of those in high places that have authority because God gave it to them? Well, look at the last half of verse 11. Jesus says, Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now it's not entirely clear in this text who Jesus is referring to when he says the one who delivered him over to Pilate. And many of us might assume when we read that that this is a reference to Judas, who is the one who actually betrayed Jesus. But that kind of seems unlikely that Jesus would be talking about Judas to Pilate here. It just doesn't seem that fitting, but perhaps that's true. That could be right. Or it could be a reference in the singular expression, the one who's delivered him over, who was that? Well, it was the Jews, the nation of Israel, the ones he came to directly first. They're the ones. It's the one who gave him over. That's possible. Or it could just be an expression that's indicating to us a general spirit of rejection that was in work in everyone who was calling out, away with him, crucify him. But I believe it's most likely a reference to the evil governing authority over all of these individual people. Satan himself. I believe that's the most likely. When he says, therefore, he who delivered me over, who's the he there? Well, after all, it was Satan who entered Judas in the context of his betrayal. And the scripture states and tells us that every person who is lost is under the influence of the devil. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You hear that? So here's the idea. It's not a stretch that Jesus would say, all these people are conspiring against me. There's one who's behind it all. There's one who's uniquely seeking this end. And it's Satan and all these sons of disobedience. And again, John 8, 44, Jesus said, you're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. What's going on in our context here? They're putting him on trial for murder, giving him up to be murdered. Here's the murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So it seems that this could be any number of different people involved in this betrayal, but underneath all of them, behind all of them, is this evil, scheming, plotting agenda of Satan, which we see unfolding in human history, which is opposed to God, seeking to destroy God's purpose. But God is in absolute, perfect control. And how can that be that God is in control? God is the one who's given the authority to those in leadership and in power, and yet there are these sinful agendas, these decisions of men and the devil coming together against God. And you might ask, what's the point in bringing all this up? Because we must, we must be aware of the reality of evil in the world and sinful decisions of men, and yet God is absolutely sovereign over it all. And so the question is, who do you suppose is going to prevail? This is foundationally important. And this is important on a number of levels, and there are many applications we could make. But who is it? What will prevails in the unfolding of human history and time? Is it my will 
Or is it God's will? And that's not to say that we're not called upon and responsible for the exercising of our wills. We certainly are, and we're going to be accountable for the way in which we do that. But whose will is supreme? Whose purposes shall stand? Who can say to him, what have you done? I just want to read for a moment for you a lengthy quote by A.W. Pink. It's on the front of your bulletin, and it perfectly declares this to us out of his book on the attributes of God. A.W. Pink says this, side by side with the immutability and invincibility of God's decrees. Just pause. Immutability, God doesn't change and His decrees don't change. What He has determined to happen will take place. His counsel will stand. And His invincibility of His decrees, they can't be thwarted. He says side by side with the fact that God's purposes will stand, that's what he's saying, side by side with that, Scripture plainly teaches that man is a responsible creature and answerable for his actions. And if our thoughts are formed from God's Word, the maintenance of the one will not lead to the denial of the other. In other words, if you believe that we must exercise our will and we're responsible for the decisions that we make, if you understand the Scriptures, that won't lead you to deny God's decrees and His sovereign purpose and vice versa. That your maintenance or your commitment or understanding of the one will not lead you to deny the other. And then he illustrates it. He says that there is a real difficulty in defining where the one ends and the other begins is freely granted. Who are we? How are we to know and understand all the secret workings of the mind of God? We don't quite get these things and yet it is true. Because he says this is ever the case where there is a conjunction of the divine and the human. He says, real prayer is indicted by the Spirit. It's produced, it's written, it's worked. The Spirit is the one at work in us when we're really praying. We're praying by the Spirit. We're utterances by the Spirit. Real prayer is written or indicted by the Spirit, yet it is also the cry of a human heart. When you're praying and you're genuinely in prayer, there's a real relationship with how you feel in the depths of your soul, and yet the Holy Spirit's doing something in you in that process. That's what he's saying. He says, the Scriptures are the inspired Word of God, yet they were written by men who were something more than machines in the hand of the Spirit. Christ is both God and man. He is omniscient, yet He increased in wisdom. He was almighty, yet was crucified through weakness. He was the Prince of life, yet He died. High mysteries are these, yet faith receives them unquestioningly. When God tells us that He's the one who sets up rulers and authorities and He removes them as He so pleases, there's no logical conclusion you can come to when someone's in a position of authority except that God intended for them to be there. And if they do evil, even evil which is accomplishing His purposes, they're accountable for their sin. And so are you, and so am I. So, this means... When we see in our text, therefore he who delivered me over to you as the greater sin, even though this is, this is not necessarily the direct statement, the implication is when Jesus says the one who delivered me over as the greater sin, implied in that is Pilate's guilty too. He, he says the one who's delivered me over has the greater sin, but Pilate had sin too. Pilate was guilty. In other words, evil rulers that God has put in positions of authority are still accountable for the decisions that they make. This means that although God is the one who sets up these rulers and authorities for His good purpose, 
These authorities are accountable for their sin before God. Now, before we're quick to only apply that to evil rulers in our land, which I know we're probably all tempted to do, every one of us, to some degree or another, find ourselves in positions of authority over others. And it's a sobering thing to remember the way in which you execute that authority, you're going to give an account to God for how you do that. You're going to give an accounting for God, to God for how you use the authority that he's been given, that's been given to you. Even if the greatest authority you ever express is as a mother to your children, the way that you exercise your authority to your children, you're going to give an account to God for how you do that. And it goes right on through to every one of us. So, in light of these things, what is to be our encouragement? Does God's sovereign purpose prevail in the light of devilish opposition? How can it be that this salvation that we're talking about is ever going to be accomplished while evil men are presiding over human history? Well, the answer is given to us first. I want to look at Acts chapter 4. A common, commonly recognized Scripture, but hear it even as though it were for the first time and see God's purpose and His goodness and His power to save. It's demonstrated through these Scriptures. Verse 23, after Peter and John have been released from prison, it says when they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. These Christians in the face of opposition and suffering at the hands of wicked men They say this, Pontius Pilate, Jesus says, you wouldn't have any authority unless it was given you from above. The Father did give Pontius Pilate the authority. What for? It was His purpose that Jesus go to the cross and die. Jesus was going to die, and part of God's purpose, His sovereignty would not be thwarted. His purpose to save would not be undone. And even it's accomplished by the wicked intentions of evil men crucifying Him the Lord of glory, accomplishing salvation for all of God's people in His cross. And you see the temporary authority which is given to Pilate and the Jewish leaders, the purpose of it was in order that they would crucify Jesus. Here's the statement. God's good purposes will not be thwarted by evil men. Rather, ultimately, they're going to be accomplished by them. The last scripture I want to look at with you before moving to close is from Psalm 2. This is what those disciples are referring to in their prayer there in Acts 4. This is what they're quoting from. It's from Psalm number 2. And think about this yet again in light of Jesus' statement. You have no authority over me unless it's been granted to you from above. And how Jesus is seen here, not railing against, not trying to prevent. Do you think even for a moment that Jesus was unable to stop this from happening to Him at the hands of Pilate? We're talking about the One that's come out of eternity and wrapped Himself in flesh with all power 
and he's submitting himself in silence before Pilate. Well, what for? Look at Psalm number 2 with me. We find this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Who is our God? What sovereign rule does He have over the nations of men, the kings among men? They rally together against Him, and our Lord, our God, He laughs. These people are never going to amount to anything in their attempts to overthrow God. And we find it, this expression, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. How can that be? You see, this is a king. This is one sovereign in control. Nothing is beyond his gaze. He sees it all. That includes wicked rulers, but it includes you and me. So how can it be that this God whose wrath is quickly kindled, who has angry anger against sin, this one who was crucified by wicked men, here you and I raise our voices together and we would have said crucify him too. How on earth is it possible that he can say, look, I offer refuge to you. You can be blessed. You can be forgiven. The answer is this. This King, the King of the universe, God Almighty, this Jesus who is clothed in majesty and in glory, submitted Himself to the Father's purpose by the hands of these cruel men. And the Scripture tells us it's by His very wounds, His stripes that were healed. And that's not telling you that by Jesus' death you get cured of every illness. God's kind and merciful to do that for us at times, but it's talking about the cross and the wrath of God that you're spared from. You're you're cured, you're healed from the wounds of your sin. That which was against you before God. Jesus goes triumphantly and says, I'm going to bear it for them, Father. I'm going to die for them. There's a wicked, godless authority here that's going to put Him to death. And He says, I'm going to bear it in order to uphold the justice of Almighty God so that He can both be the just and the justifier of those who trust in Him so that we can be forgiven according to His substitution. We can be reconciled to God by His sacrifice. This is the perfect wisdom of our God. This is how this unfolds. God's sovereign purpose is that He's both just and the justifier of the wicked in that His Son bore the wrath of the wicked for them. And the way this culminated, just like every other thing in human history, is by God's decree. My prayer for you is that if you're struggling with an authority who's evil in your life, that you would be able to submit to God, to trust your God, 
And perhaps there are opportunities, whether it's a political leader or some other thing where you can work to to, to be a means for that person. You may be a means God uses to remove them. He says he removes them. Well, maybe who knows what that looks like. But here's the point. We're talking about the attitude of your heart towards those that you're under the authority of. And again, if you're one who's in authority over others, the only authority you have is given by God. You will give an account for how you rule over others. But the ultimate charge to us all, and this is why I started with this emphasis on seeing the glory of the gospel, is you see the point in this? I could stand before you and I could say, recognize the authority of others and be encouraged by that. Or I could say, here's some practical wisdom. Use your authority wisely, you know? Use your authority in a way that's honoring to God. Okay, those are wonderful things, practical things. You go to the Scriptures... And you look, what's the motivation that's given in the text of Acts 4? How is it that these disciples are supposed to be practically encouraged to continue on in ministry, continue on with a right heart's attitude towards God, sharing the gospel with others? What's the motivation? Remember Christ and Him crucified. Oh yeah, it's elementary doctrine and that's how you're converted. You come into the kingdom by repentance and faith in this Christ. But as a Christian... Every aspect of your growth and development in the Christian life is all rooted in the same cross and the same Christ. It's seeing who He is and what He's done. That's the driving motivation for all that we do as Christian people. And if you have not come to know this, realize this, this entire message is one great proclamation to you of the lengths that God has gone even through the death of His Son, to save sinful people by punishing His Son instead of them. So I pray you would repent. You would come to Christ. See the beauty of Jesus Christ. This King who's he's ready to receive those who come to Him. Though they deserve judgment, the appeal, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. So with that, I'll ask you to bow with me. We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, You have been good. Lord, I thank You that Your Word does not fail even whenever I do. Father, I thank You that we can have a rock of security and strength and encouragement. That we can read Your Word. We're not dependent upon the words of fallible men, but an infallible God. Father, I pray that You would continue to move amongst Your people, stir us up, to love one another well and bring glory to You. Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 497. If you'd stand.